Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. As globalization breaks down geographic boundaries and market barriers that once kept businesses from achieving their potential, a company's ability to innovate has never been more critical. But with the backdrop of a challenging global economy, returns from R&D in high science organizations are increasingly in the spotlight. As many public and private companies rely heavily on innovation to drive enterprise value, we are aiming to explore through the eyes of experienced science, innovation, and research leaders what really differentiates success in terms of leadership in driving innovation, and how can leaders truly unlock the potential that new science brings to drive consistent returns for their industries. Hi, I'm Andy McLeod, partner in Hydric and Struggles London office and a member of the Global Healthcare and Life Sciences Practice and CEO and Board Practice. In today's podcast, I'm talking to Martin Mackay. Martin is co-founder and chief executive officer of Rally Bio and has worked in pharmaceutical and biotech R&D for more than 30 years, holding senior leadership roles at companies including Pfizer, AstraZeneca and Alexium. He is currently a member of the board of directors of Charles River Laboratories and Novo Nordisk. He is also a senior advisor at New Leaf Ventures. Martin summarizes the three loves in his life as being family, work, and soccer, but not necessarily in that order. Martin obtained a first-class honors degree in microbiology from Harriet Watt University and his PhD in molecular genetics from the University of Edinburgh. Uh, Martin, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Andy. Looking forward to it. So let's get started. Martin, As you look back, uh, please tell us about what first triggered your passion for science, medicine, research and innovation. Oh, thank you, Andy. What a great question. You know, I was a kind of typical working class wee boy in Scotland, left school at 16, luckily with some qualifications, but I mean, university and that was not on the agenda. Nobody from where I came from went to, to uni, nor any of my friends. You know, we all at 16 stopped school and went out to work. But I was really lucky because I knew in my heart that I wanted to work in a laboratory. And I think why was really there was great programs on the BBC about science and and I was kind of intrigued by this notion of wearing a white coat. So at 16 year old, I worked in a bacteriology laboratory at the City Hospital Edinburgh. What I noticed during my couple of years there that everybody that was making the decisions had this thing called a degree. And I thought, yeah, I, I, I need to get some of that. So went to university, got my degree, as you said, in Harriet Watt in microbiology, and then went out to work again in the 70s with Beecham Pharmaceuticals. By that time, I kind of knew I wanted to work in the industry, the pharmaceutical industry. But exactly the same thing happened. I looked around and found that everybody that was making decisions had this thing called a PhD. <laughs> So long story short, went back to went back to university, got a PhD, postdoctoral work, uh, also in Edinburgh. But by that time, I was kind of devoted to the notion of working in the pharmaceutical industry. 
And so it all kind of came together. And my you know, first job was with, um, after the, the Beecham's piece, was with Sibagaige, the Swiss multinational pharmaceutical company. So all kind of cemented. But I think it was just luck that I really wanted to work in a lab. And that passion that you were talking about, has that still been with you over the years? It's just incredible, Andy. It has not diminished. In fact, since starting our own company in 2018, Rally Bio, I'd say it's even heightened because the work that we're doing there and the projects we're working on are just fascinating in rare disease. And so not only has it, has it not diminished, I'd say it's enhanced with time. Now, let's talk a little bit about invention and innovation. Some commentators differentiate between invention and innovation. How do you see this as a leader? Yeah, I must confess, I hadn't made that differentiation, but as recently as yesterday, there was um, two awards made, not surprisingly, but gladly to two of my former companies. So AstraZeneca and Pfizer won the Innovation and Invention Awards um, this week. And how they categorized it was invention was how you brought a number of technologies together to form a product. And that was given to uh, Pfizer. And innovation was this ability to create medicines. And this was AstraZeneca. And I hadn't really separated in that way. Because if you think about to innovate, you patent something, right? It's intellectual property. And what what do you need to innovate? You need three things. It needs to be novel, it needs to be not obvious, and it needs to be useful. And that's always been my thoughts on innovation and invention. You need to satisfy those criteria. And taking that forward into how you look at progressing innovation, as you reflect on your time as a leader of organisations that have impacted and are impacting the world of science, What characteristics stand out for you that the great leaders possess? I'm writing a book just now, and it's called The Fog of Leadership. But the title of the book is 31 Leaders, 29 Human Beings. And what that signifies is I've had 31 leaders in my career since I left school at 16. I can name them all. I have, you know, named them all. And... The 29 is two of them had to suffer me twice. <laughs> so two of them was my, my boss twice, David Brennan and John Lamartina. I'm, I'm doing this book and what struck me was you can't just say a leader's great or bad. It's way more nuanced than that. And what I did was I, I've, I've created this kind of matrix of attributes of leadership and then I'm going to score the leaders that I've had. I won't do all 31 because some of them go you know, way back to the 70s. But in that, I think about things like vision, right? humanity, um, intelligence, articulate, and, and all these things come into it. And of course, there's very few people that tick every box. You just think about who, who can have everything. And often when people are think about great leaders, they name political leaders. And, and that's not what I'm about because I've worked in this industry. So fortunately, I've had some really great leaders. But I think the ones that have stuck out most, most are this ability to have a vision of the future and ask and get people to follow. And that last part is the human part. You know, are you an authentic, real person that cares about people, 
that treats people like adults and you set the vision. Whilst appreciating scientific developments have both academic and commercial impact, with a focus on businesses that require innovation to sustain their growth and development, how do the best leaders enable innovation to be translated into commercial value? Yes. You think about our business, you know, discovering and developing medicines. Um, not only is it long, but it's fraught with risk. Just think about the number of failures that you have. So for a leader to work in research, for example, they have to have the ability to identify real innovators. Often I've found in industry in particular, often we promote these innovators out of that position and ask them to manage and lead people and they're often not the best people to do that. And also, they don't want to do it. They want to be inventors and innovators. So I think part of the job in our science is to identify those people that are true innovators, are really thinking about, in our case, the disease, the target, the modality, all of these pieces coming together, and then um, you know, getting the people in that position to do what they do best. And how does that then align to commercial value? So again, it's it's really interesting that early on in the process, in companies, you kind of need that input, right? You have to know that the thing that you're going to make is going to generate revenues. I think for us scientists, we're totally driven sometimes by the good of humanity. And again, it's part of a leader's job, I think, to align both of those things. I think that sometimes the mistake is made, though, that early on we try and decide what that's going to look like. It might be 15 years hence. That's jolly difficult. And when you do these analyses of, you know, what we call them maximum peak revenues or things, the only thing you know about that figure is it's wrong. There's no chance of getting it right in those early days. So as part of that innovation thing, you have to think about how is science going, how's medicine going, how's clinical practice going. And if you can bring all of these together, you've got at least a fighting chance to come up with a product that's going to be successful in the market. You talked earlier about your passion um, and what great leaders have. How significant do you think is having a purpose in building momentum and progress in innovation are there examples you can draw upon? Absolutely. Um, I, I, I'll speak about Rally Bio for a while. You know, the company that a couple of co-founders and I started at the beginning of 2018. Our purpose was very clear. Transformative medicines for patients with rare and devastating diseases. It's like a great purpose. What we mean by that is the patient is really ill and gets better and leads a normal life. So there's nothing wrong with incremental benefits, but what we're after is that transformation. And we were able to work on some medicines in our former companies that did exactly that. So I think of one in particular, uh, Asphetase Alpha, also known as Strenzeek, went onto the market in 2015 for a devastating bone disease um, called hypophosphatasia. And in that disease, in the worst cases, the perinatal, the, the, vet, the infants that are born, if you do a radiograph of these infants, you can't see a skeleton. I mean, they just don't make bone because they, they lack this enzyme called tissue nonspecific alkaline phosphatase, or there's a mutation in this enzyme. 
And with this medicine called asphetase alpha, which Alexion brought onto the market, you can see a skeleton after treatment. I, I've never I've never been able to see anything that's quite as profound as seeing no skeleton and a skeleton, and then all the other benefits that accrues from that. A great example and also reflects a passion behind all of that as well. You have a love of sport, uh, particularly soccer, and in fact we share a love of the great or not so great heart of Midlothian Football Club in Edinburgh. While hearts are by no means the Real Madrid of football, do you see parallels in professional sport at the highest levels with leadership in business? Yeah, it's such a great question. And yeah, the hearts. Who would have thought, Andy, that you and I from Scotland would be in Boston talking about the world-famous heart of Midlothian? In terms of parallels, there's a couple of things that I think about. Leadership on the field. And, and you and I have both witnessed great players that had that leadership that led by example, that people could follow and really get behind just by by the example of how good they are. They were probably a little mouthy as well. It's, you know, I've also seen that in my history. But the other one that intrigues me about from a business perspective, I'm sure you know this, but Jean-Paul Sartre was a great soccer fan, great soccer fan. And he, he has this quote, which I'll paraphrase, which is, um, uh, soccer would be an easy game if it wasn't for the opposition. And, and I've applied that in leadership practices quite often. And, and one that always sticks out is in business development, when you're working with an external partner, it would be really easy had it not been for the other company. But where it helps you is put yourself in their position. How do they feel about what's happening now? So I think there's a leadership trait there about really putting yourself in the other person's position. Experimentation often leads to negative results and failure. How important is an agile mindset to deal with setbacks and re-strategize new directions? Tell us a bit how you encourage that in yourself and in your teams. You know, this process, as I say, say it's 15 years, you're going to hit hard times. So the lesson for me was never get too high, never get too low. If it's a good result, never build it up to something that's greater than it is. And if it's a bad result, try and work out a way of how you can get through this. And I'll give you one example. In the mid-90s, two terrific scientists at uh, Sandwich and Kent, the Pfizer laboratories, James Merson and Manos Peros, um, came to me to tell me about this idea they had for a new antiviral. And it was based on uh, a finding that there were some people that should have caught AIDS, HIV AIDS, but didn't. So they wondered, why was this? They were highly vulnerable. And some wonderful genetic analysis by academics showed that they had a mutation in their CCR5 gene. So James and Manos's idea was come up with a CCR5 antagonist to treat HIV AIDS. And as they left the room, I thought, they are nuts. I mean... It's really hard to come up with chemokine receptor antagonists and never in our history have we had an antiviral that's been directed against the host, not the virus. So you're, you're double unprecedented, which is hard in our industry. Ten years later, we launched the medicine, right? And there was, there was 
hard times along the way, but the tenacity that they showed to get into development and then the people in development took it all the way to the market, they were able to realize that it was going to be tough, so failures would happen. Many of the compounds failed, but they had the tenacity, and I think that's the key word, Andy, with failure. You just need sometimes to see your way through this. And resilience, I guess. Resilience, well. just oodles of it. Now, you've been a CEO and a chief R&D officer as well as a board member. You have therefore a very special view on how various stakeholders look at creating value through science and innovation. What's your secret sauce that unites these parties around leading successful innovation? I don't think I have a secret sauce, but I have some kind of principles in any of the jobs that I've been in. And fundamentally, it's the one about people and treating people like adults and being honest and authentic as a leader with folks. And I feel just really, I'm deeply motivated by that notion. So when I was an R&D head in great companies, it was all to do with the people that were working in the labs or in the clinic or supporting these people. You know, the HR professionals, the finance professionals, the medical affairs, that notion as a team motivated. As a CEO, it's a wee bit different, but the biggest difference is it's in a startup rather than a massive pharmaceutical company that has everything. The American term, Andy, is we're much scrappier. We have to kind of fight for every morsel that we get. But fundamentally, it's the same. In Rally Bio, there's around 45 people. They're all, first and foremost, excellent human beings. And the, the, the startup gives you that ability to hire these wonderful people. And what sort of people do they hire? wonderful people. So you kind of grow up in that in that way. One of our values in the company is to be kind. Don't see that too often in lists of values, um, but it was really important to us. Um, you can be driven by what you do. You can be highly motivated. You don't have to be a jerk to do it. Finally, we'd love to know which great inventors and, in, and innovators would you most like to invite to a dinner party? And why? <laughs> Can you imagine having that ability to do that, put a few people together in our field? So so here's the type of people I would like, and I'll, for each one of them, I'll, I'll say why. So Rosalind Franklin, you know, with the, the discovery of DNA with Watson and Crick, there's been many texts written about what role she played, and she played a much bigger role than she was ever given credit for by anybody. I'd love to be able to sit with her and ask her what it was like in that lab as you were working out the structure of DNA. What did it feel like and how did she feel about everything going on? So she'd be number one on my list. Number two would be Marie Curie, a great um, heroine uh, of mine as I looked at her work and what she did and often against odds and just what a fantastic scientist. So again, the question would be, what was it like in that lab? Right at that time when you were, you know, doing your radiochemistry and the likes. And then the others take me back to my roots as a microbiologist. So Robert Koch of Koch's postulates, you know, one of the early microbiologists. And of course, the other people around in that era were Paul Ehrlich and Louis Pasteur. So 
kind of, it's a very European group of people. We'd have to speak some different languages in there, some German and French and, and the likes. But I cannot think of a better dinner than those five people around talking about science, discovery, innovation, what it was like in their day to be these great scientists. Thank you, Martin, uh, for taking the time to speak with us today. It was an absolute pleasure. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.